Hi, it's Krista. Before we start today, I wanted to share exciting events and campaigns that are taking place this fall at Diabetes Canada. First, in November, we're bringing people who live with type 1 and type 2 diabetes and their caregivers together for Diabetes Canada Connect. That's a free week-long virtual diabetes education and community event aimed at fostering meaningful connections and learning. And finally, for the healthcare professionals in our listenership, the Diabetes Canada CSEM professional programming will be held at Vascular 2023 from October 25th to 29th at the Palais des Congrès de Montréal. Six host organizations, one fee, thousands of chances to share insights in vascular health with leaders in the field, colleagues, and peers from Canada and around the world. Register for that today at vascular2023.ca. Interested in any of these events? The links to all of them are included in our show notes. As technology in type 1 diabetes becomes more advanced, we are starting to see an increase in personalized therapies. Whether a person is using hybrid closed loop or multiple daily injections, there are options being studied to make living with diabetes easier to manage. I'm Krista Lam, and today on the Diabetes Canada podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Ahmad Haider from McGill University about his research into diabetes technologies. Dr. Haydar is an associate professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering who leads the McGill Diabetes Technologies Lab. Welcome to the show. It is so wonderful to have you here. Uh, thanks for having me. So I am looking really forward to talking to you about some of your work, but I'll give you a chance if you would like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Uh, so I'm Ahmad Haidar. I'm an associate professor at the Department of uh, Biomedical Engineering at uh, McGill University. And I do work in the field of diabetes technologies, mainly for people who are using an insulin pump, but lately for people who are also on multiple daily injections. And my lab, we do both device development and also clinical trials. That's so interesting. And one of the things I love about you is you have an engineering background. And a lot of people don't think engineering and diabetes research. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I did my bachelor in electrical engineering. And I, I took most of my advanced courses in control engineering. And I saw I did my master's in mechanical engineering, but also was in control engineering. And control engineering is basically if you have an airplane and you want to have an autopilot algorithm, how you do this, which is basically the field of control engineering. Or if you want to have a controller to control a temperature in a room or a temperature in a chemical reactor, this is also control engineering. So a little bit similar to controlling sugar level in a person with type 1 diabetes, because you measure sugar level and you need to decide how much insulin to give. So the mathematics behind the two problems are somehow similar. And this is how I got from engineering into, into medicine. But yes, you're right. My background is as a pure electrical engineering and some mechanical. Yeah. So I have talked to you before about the work that you do on the artificial pancreas and trying to make things easier for people living with diabetes, helping them to better control insulin, better control blood sugars. These are things that are really important to you. Why are those things important to you? Oh, you know, I can be honest, like when you start working in this field, it was more a professional career choice. Like I didn't have any personal attachment, any emotional attachment. When I did my PhD, they wanted to do something in the medical field rather than something a pure electromechanical system. 
and maybe I could have chosen oncology or maybe immunology, but I found this problem. It's related to me. I started working on it. But over the years, I've been working in this field since 2009. I mean, this is now 14 years. Over the years, you become part of the community, you know, especially if you go and you spend six weeks in a diabetes camp, uh, you live and you feel you're part of the community and your job is just to create knowledge that can help people with type 1 diabetes living healthier, longer lives. So now, again, I just feel I'm part of the community, but before it was a professional choice. Yeah, and you mentioned that you had spent some time at a diabetes camp, and that was one of the places where you were able to do some of your research, which is really wonderful because it is a great opportunity to work with young people in sort of a, a very specific environment. That's fantastic. And I really want to talk a little bit more about why you've been doing all of this research. So I know that you have Diabetes Canada funding for the projects that you're working on. And I would love to talk to you about what those projects are and what is it that you're trying to do? Yeah, so Diabetes Canada has been very supportive. And honestly, without their funding, a lot of the things we did, or maybe most of the things we did, would not have been possible. And we got more funding from other sources, but the early funded, which is really the most important one, actually came from Diabetes Canada. So I want to thank them for this. Now, initially, our funding, when I was at RCM with Ramir Abadaloga, we did some studies to look at the combination of delivering insulin and glucagon. So if you have a system that delivers insulin and glucagon, how much improvement you can get compared to a system that delivers insulin alone. So we had some funding from Diabetes Canada, multiple grants to do different studies, looking at different population, different settings, exercise overnight, camp setting, adult pediatrics, and so on. Uh, however, slowly later, we started to move toward using what we call adjunctive therapies. So our last ongoing Diabetes Canada funding, we're looking at the question, if someone is using a commercial automated insulin delivery system or an artificial pancreas system, and they still do not achieve a glycemic tab for whatever reason, their time in range still below 70%, which means that they're using the best available insulin delivery method, and they still don't achieve glycemic targets. If you take these individuals and you give them low-dose impagliflozin, can you improve the glucose control? And the reason we look at low-dose impagliflozin, because if you look at the studies with this drug in type 1 diabetes, it shows glycemic benefits, but also showed increase in diabetes ketoacidosis, two to five-fold. With the lowest dose, we actually did not see any increase in diabetes ketoacidosis, but some people argued when they look at the data that the glycemic benefit with that dose was not significant enough. But what we're looking at in our research is that if you take people who are not achieving glycemic targets, which means that there is a lot more room for improvement, the low dose might actually be quite powerful enough to show meaningful glycemic benefits while being safe in terms of not increasing the risk of diabetes ketoacidosis. So the funding from the Diabetes Canada, we're doing this multi-centre trial. So us, IRCM here in Montreal and Bruce Perkins in Toronto, where we're looking at 46 individuals uh, on a closed-loop system, and half of them, they use the drug, and half of them, they use placebo. Excellent. And we actually have Dr. Perkins coming on the podcast later this season. And so he'll talk a little bit about some of the work that he has done with empagliflozin, which for those of you who are not familiar, is an SGLTI, which is a sodium glucose transport inhibitor, <laughs> which is a form of medication. And these are add-on therapies to insulin for those that aren't familiar with the term adjunct. So things that you could use with your insulin that could improve your blood sugar outcomes and your hyperglycemia risk would be also improved, I'm assuming. Is that correct? 
Uh, not hypoglycemia, to my knowledge. You maintain the same risk of hypoglycemia, but you improve hyperglycemia. So reduce high sugar level without increasing the occurrence of low sugar levels. So the idea, of course, with a lot of these things is that people would be able to sort of set it and forget it with their technology. So they wouldn't have the burden of trying to think about their diabetes all the time, that the technology could take over a little bit. Is that sort of what you're hoping for? Yeah, exactly. And these devices are already showing this now in the markets. So before we had the closed loop systems, people used to have an insulin pump and basically they measured their sugar level with a meter. And in the pump, they program, we call that open loop. So they program how much insulin they need for every night. So they say, okay, every night I need from midnight till four o'clock, one unit per hour between four and eight in the morning, I need 0.7 units per hour. Now, the problem is that this might work for you on an average night, but there is large variability between night to night. And then if you do exercise during the day, you need less insulin at night. If you eat high fat meal during the day, you need more insulin at night. If you're stressed a little bit, you need more insulin at night. So it's extremely difficult for people to predict how much insulin they need for every single night. So by having the pump connected to a device that measures sugar level in a continuous manner, so continuous glucose monitoring system, you can automate the process on a five or a 10 minutes basis. So every 10 minutes, you look at the sugar level and you give the right amount of insulin that you believe this particular individual needs at that particular time, which basically means the system automatically takes into account the variability that you have between nights. So that was, so when I started working in the field, these devices were not commercially available. So we were doing, us and other people, all these studies and looking at different configurations, different dosing algorithms, but now it's been now five years, these devices are in the market and people are seeing a lot of improvements in glycemic control and quality of life, quality of sleeps. However, one thing I should mention is that they still have to do some form of carbohydrate counting. So with the current commercial closed loop systems or automated insulin delivery systems, each meal time, they still have to look at the meal and they need to estimate the amount of carbohydrate, not calories, carbohydrate. And I don't need to convince you, this is quite challenging. I mean, just imagine you have to do that for every single meal you eat for all your life. So there is this whole literature that shows it's challenging. People usually make errors, they add stress, and so on. So what people are now are moving to, including us in the research, we're trying to build new devices, either through smarter algorithms or through using different insulins, where we either simplify the need for carbohydrate counting. So maybe you can choose if the meal is small, medium, or large, or maybe even pressing a button at the system at mealtime, or even completely alleviating the need of carbohydrate counting or any meal announcement. So you wear the system, you eat, and the system take care of everything. So this is where the future lies. Like in the next five, 10 years, the new system is trying to focus. It's really alleviate and reduce the burden around carbohydrate counting. I think it's really exciting time for people living with diabetes because we're starting to see that we have all of these new technologies. Some of them are a little more complicated, but I think you kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of the fact that it is still really, really hard to manage the carb counting. I know whenever there's an event for people with diabetes, I'm always like, you know what? We have like gluten-free signs. We have all sorts of signs. Maybe we can have one with the carb count as well for these different dishes because that would be something really, really helpful. So long-term for you, what is your end goal for this? What would you like to see at the very end for people living with diabetes using the technology that you're hoping to develop? Yeah, so definitely fully closed loop system. 
So this is where we believe it the, will be extremely important in terms of improvement of quality of life for people, which means you wear the system and you just forget about it. And now there are other things which are not really my field of, of research, but you know we need to have smaller devices. Like currently you have a pump outside the body connected with a tube and you have to change an infusion set every three days. Now we're getting infusion set needs to change every seven days, a sensor somewhere else. So it'd be nice if you have smaller devices with concentrated insulin, the sensor and the pump are together. Uh, so this is not something we are doing, but this is what I'm hoping, you know, pump and sensor companies will be doing that work. And at the same time, we are developing algorithms so that these devices will require no interference from the user and just wear them and just live basically without having to worry about managing their sugar level. Now, the other thing which we started in the lab recently is that so there's a lot of focus on glycemic control. So these devices improve glucose control and improve the quality of life. But there's an increased obesity within the type 1 diabetes population. There is some residual risk of cardiorenal you know, complications. And there are some other drugs, adjunctive therapies, for example, the SGLT2 inhibitor that you mentioned, that is the GLP ones. These are developed primarily for type 2 and some of them for obesity. And then if we want to take these drugs and use them in type 1 diabetes, how can we use that safely? So I'm not the complications guy, but do treatments and technologies. So some of the studies now we're currently doing, is trying to combine technologies with some of these drugs. So we have an ongoing study now where we're looking at semaglutide or ozempic. I think most people hear the term ozempic. So we're comparing semaglutide versus placebo in people who are using automated insulin delivery systems so we can understand whether the system needs to remain the same, whether we need to change the algorithm, the settings of the system, how much improvement you can get when you have semaglutide on top of closed loop system. So this is where we're also heading at the lab and we have been doing some work in that field, yeah. Yeah, it is really interesting. The more I hear about all of these new drugs and new therapies, I mean, for years, we had so few options for people with both type 1 and type 2. So this is really exciting to see that there are opportunities. Do you think that some of these risks that we've heard about, I know with SGLTIs in type 1, there was the concern about DKA. Do you see any of these risks being things that can be overcome using technologies? I mean, for DKA, for example, this is basically increased ketone levels. And the problem with SGLT2 inhibitor, it happened with euglycemia. So your sugar level within the normal range and you have high ketones. It's a bit harder to detect than the traditional DKA that happened when you have high sugar level. Now, one of the technologies that would help is a continuous ketone monitoring system. So Abbott is developing one. And the idea is that you wear this device the same way you wear your continuous glucose monitoring system and automatically measure your ketone level in a continuous non-invasive manner. And then if your ketone level start to go above a certain threshold, then start to alarm, and then people start to act accordingly to basically eat and give themselves insulin and maybe stop the SGLT2 inhibitor. But these technologies could help the use of some of these drugs safely in type 1 diabetes. So Abbott are developing continuous ketone sensor. We reach out to them to see whether we can use it for research. They're not ready yet. They're still doing the development. It's just, it's so interesting because I think we have so many different options right now, which I think makes things a little bit easier for so many people. Some people still like their uh, daily injections and that's okay too. So I just want to make sure that we say that for anyone who's listening, who might be thinking that they don't want all of these therapies. So that is something to consider as well. 
So we're doing actually research also for those who are using multiple daily injections. So the thing is that if you're using an insulin pump with a glucose sensor, you cannot just insulin delivery every five or 10 minutes. Obviously, if you're using multiple daily injection, you cannot do that. However, what you could do, you could make an adjustment to your basal dose and your insulin to carbohydrate ratios or your fixed randal doses every week. So we developed an app with an algorithm that look at the previous week data. So how much insulin you had, the amount of carbohydrate you had, uh, your sugar level and your insulin basal doses and analyze the previous week data and come up with a new dose recommendations for the following week. So we did an algorithm and we built an app and we're currently almost done with a study with 84 participants. So it's actually our largest study where we took 84 participants who are using multiple daily injections. Their A1C at baseline is above 7.5 and we randomized them into two groups. So one group had the app but the app just acted as a bolus calculator. So the app was not intelligent and making changes over time. And then the other half, they used the app, but the app every week made a new recommendations to the individual basal dose and basically prandial doses. And we we're looking at primary outcome, looking at A1C. So we still haven't did the final analysis. We're still waiting for the last three participants, but the feedback from the people who are running the study so far or doing the study is extremely, extremely positive. And, you know, a lot of people know how to make the changes themselves or, you know, the doctors can make the changes. But if you see your doctor once every three months or six months, if you're better though that, I don't know, 20 units and you need 30, the doctor will be reluctant to push you all the way to 30. Okay, we'll try 23. I'll see you again in six months. And six months you come, okay, I'll try, I don't know, 25. And then it takes longer before you get your optimal dose. But if you have an algorithm that does this automatically, you could actually do this change every week and gradually get to the 30 units that you need within a much shorter period of time. So it allows faster convergence to the optimal dose. And I think this is really, really wonderful because one of the things that I hear sometimes as feedback on the show is that we talk a lot about technologies and we talk a lot about people that are using pumps and sensors and all sorts of things. But a lot of people living with type one are still on multiple daily injections and they prefer that. And that is their choice. And in so I love that we're, we're doing research on that as well, as, because I think that that's something that people really want and need. So amazing to hear that your lab is working on that. And I understand you also have a study going on right now with exercise related to that. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are all these guidelines that are published for people who are doing exercise. You know, if you're doing exercise two or three hours after the meal, you have to reduce your prandial insulin bolus, which is the meal insulin injection by a certain percentage, depending on the intensity of the exercise. So these are, you know, they're published guidelines they are very detailed, but there's large variability between individuals. So some people, they need maybe 50% reduction of the insulin dose. Some people need 30, some people need 70. And there's also some reproducibility within the same individual. So some people who need 50% reduction, they probably need 50% reduction most of the time when they do that same exercise. And the other thing we thought about it is that, well, people who do regular exercise, they tend to do two or three exercises maximum regularly. You know, you either play tennis and you swim three times a week. You don't play tennis and swim and soccer and golf. So we build an app that actually learn the individual response to specific exercises and provide personalized recommendations over time. So the person, every time they exercise postprandially, so between zero to four hours after the meal, at the time of the meal bolus, they tell the bolus calculator, I'm playing soccer. 
and then the Boris calculator will say, okay, initially starts with this general recommendation that they work for the average individual. So reduce their bolus by, let's say, 50%. But then it look at their sugar level. So if the 50% was too much or too little, the next time they announce the same exercise at the same time, they get slightly different recommendation. And the idea that over time, we will converge to the right amount of insulin reduction that this particular need for this particular exercise. And there is some learning. So if someone does 10 exercises of supper after lunch, and they do 10 times after dinner over a period of two months, and then suddenly they announce exercise the same one after breakfast, we borrow a little bit of what we learned for that particular exercise for lunch and dinner. And if they go ahead and they announce swimming this time, we borrow a little bit from the sucker if you have no information about the sucker, but also we learn over time about how their body reacts to swimming and we provide personalized recommendations. So we built that for the exercise and we did now a single arm trial. So it's not a randomized controlled trial. So we don't have a comparable group, but we had 16 individuals who used the app for three months. And then we looked at their glucose control for the first four weeks and the last four weeks and we see reduction in hypoglycemia. But again, this is not a controlled trial. We don't have another group without using the app. So we don't know, like maybe this individual just simply doing the study over a period of 12 weeks, they get improvement irrespective of the app. But it looks like the app has contributed a little bit to the hypoglycemia or maybe most of it. So we have to do another study with a control arm to see this benefit. But this is where we're moving uh, in terms of providing personalized recommendations for people on multiple daily injections in response to exercise. And I think that the listeners will be really excited about, I know that we've had Dr. Jane Yardley on and Dr. Michael Riddell talking about exercise as well as Dr. Desi Zareva, and they have been very popular episodes. So I know people will be super excited to hear that you're also working on that. So thank you for sharing that with us. So I will ask you also about a study that you're doing on high fat diets and multiple daily injections. And I would love to know a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So if you talk to most people who eat a large amount of fat, people tend to have late hyperglycemia. So, you know, up to eight hours after the meal, their sugar level remain high. So there is some literature that suggests if you split the dose, so if you get an insulin dose at the beginning of the meal and another one two hours later, it can help better control meals with a high amount of fat. But again, there is large variability between individuals. And you can go to the literature and find the average recommendations, but may not work for everyone. So we also build an app that learns the individual responses to high-fat meal. So at mealtime, when the person eats a meal, they can say, okay, this is high-fat meal. And then the app will give a bolus at the mealtime and another bolus two hours later. And over time, we optimize the immediate bolus at mealtime and the late bolus to the individual responses to the high-fat meal. And also, we did the same study with the exercise. So we had actually in the app also a high-fat meal option. So we did a 16-week trial. And we also found that the reduction in hyperglycemia in the last four weeks of the study compared to the first four weeks of the study. Again, this is an uncontrolled trial, but seem to suggest that providing people with personalized recommendation, it can have them give the right amount of insulin. And it is funny because when you look at the data, like if you take the average insulin bolus at mealtime and the average insulin bolus two hours later, it's somehow similar to what we see in the literature for recommendations for you know the average population. But when you look at the individual needs, we see large variability between people, which actually suggests personalized recommendation is really the way to go. 
I'm so excited about the wealth of things that we have going on in the world right now. And in terms of research, and I mean, obviously, I wrote a book about all of this, and you were in that book. And one of my favorite stories, and one of the stories that I've told when I'm doing my talks, because everyone is so touched by it, is the story about you working at camp, and you having this chance to give back to the community of children. And I wanted, as my last question, to really ask you about the opportunity to work in pediatrics, because I think that very few people realize how much you've done to try and support pediatric research for kids with type 1. And I would love to know why that is important to you. Yeah, of course. So I worked a lot with Laura Lego. Uh, so Laura Lego, the pediatrician at McGill. And from the beginning, we wanted to do studies in pediatrics. And one of the main reasons, again, at that time, is mostly like scientific reason. When you look at the published data about glucose control, you see that teenagers and young adults is the population where you have the lowest glycemic outcomes. So we felt if there is any population that would benefit the most from these technologies, it's really the pediatric population. So you could run studies in adults and they would get benefits, but the population will get most of it is only the pediatric. So this was the initial motivation behind doing studies in, in the peace population. Now, the reason we went to the camp, because the camp is quite unique, because you have three sessions here in, in the camp. You have a Caroness in Quebec. Each session is two weeks, and each session have between 80 to 100 child. So you have 250 people living with type 1 diabetes that are there for six weeks. So we would rent a cottage at the camp and spend six weeks doing study. That will take me maybe two or three years to run through the hospital. So initially, it was more from a convenience point of view, like just go to the camp and run the study. And the camp also has two other advantages. It's quite safe. There are physicians there, there are nurses, it's closely monitored. So it's a safe environment, but also the very challenging environment, you know, like all kinds of activities, you know, physical activities, different types of foods. You really challenge your system more than what you challenge them in real life or outside the camp, but also in an environment that is safer than outside the camp. So it's really an amazing place to do studies, and you can do large studies within a short period of time. So this was the initial motivation. But then when you want to do studies in the camp, this is where you feel more, you know, the science is there, but it starts to feel more emotional attachment, really, to the kids and to the camp and to the cause. And, and there's one particular story. I don't know if I mentioned that in the book. I don't remember, but it, it really hit me hard. This was the first time we did the camp. We had CTV coming, and they were interviewing one of the kids in a tent. And they asked her, oh, what do you think about the system? And I was just outside the tent. So I was listening to the interview. And I was like so proud. We had no hypoglycemia. Sugar levels were perfect. And we were having insulin and glucagon system and insulin and system. Both of them were perfectly fine. The algorithm was good. I was like, you know, very happy. And then her response was, oh, beaucoup de cassettes. Like means too many cassettes. And because, you know, she was having an insulin pump and a glucagon pump. And, you know, each one of them had a cassette. She didn't talk about the glucose control. She didn't talk about hypoglycemia. So I still remember like that particular night, I went back to my, uh, you know, I was sleeping there at, at the tent. And then I was telling myself, well, you know, it's not just about the glucose control. Yes, the glucose control is important, obviously. But, you know, from their perspective, like I think about it, I'm, I'm trying to beat diabetes. They actually want to forget about diabetes. And it just changed really my perspective about the problem that I'm trying to solve the kind of question I try to answer, the clinical research that we're doing. So I learned, you know, being there, 
where what kind of research I should be doing moving forward. And in the last, for example, a few years, we have been like heavily trying to integrate quality of life and patient reported outcomes in our studies. So now in almost all our studies, we do interview with the participants to look at quality of life, patient reported outcomes. You know, the whole focus on carbohydrate counting is driven by some of the lessons, not just me, me and the team, we learned by actually being there. Now, the other thing we did for the camp, and you know, the camp Quranis we have here, they have around 16 tents. So eight for the boys, eight for the girls. And it's a hilly camp. So at night, I would go over the tents to make sure that the system is actually running. And it takes me around an hour to go from the first tent all the way to the last tent. You know, you go tent by tent, you make sure the devices are working. It's an hour to an hour and a half. And then, you know, some other kids who are not doing the study, they could be in hypoglycemia, they don't wear a glucose sensor. And then in the morning, at that time, some of them are using, you know, like freestyle one, you download the data and you see, well, all these hypoglycemia happening at night. And also they're far from the tent. So I thought, well, maybe we could do something for, you know, for the people who are at the camp and try to improve basically their glucose control overnight. So we had an undergrad students from McGill, so four undergrad students in electrical engineering. Uh, they came to me to do a capstone project, which is a project to do before you graduate. And I said, well, build for us a remote monitoring system for the camp. And this was like many years ago. So this was before you have the shared feature and the Dexcom that you probably could use but now for that purpose. So what we did, we had a freestyle sensor for each kid in the camp. And then we bought Meow Meow, which is another hardware. I don't know if they sell it now, which in the old days, you put it on top of the freestyle one to make it look like now we have a freestyle too. So you can get the data in real time or freestyle free. And then we went to use some of the software that was developed by the open APS community. Uh, so we took that software and we linked freestyle one to Meow Meow to the Night Scout was called. So this is what developed again by the type one diabetes community. And then we had a phone, we were able to get donations for phones, and we put a phone under each bed for each kid, and then we covered the entire camp with Wi-Fi, and there was no Wi-Fi there. And then we donated big screen that we put in the middle of the camp, which is where the infirmary is, where the nurses at night are, and then they see their sugar level of the kids in real time. So you have 80 kids in real time, you can see their sugar level in real time with all kinds of alarms, and they have their number, and you have different color coded depending on the sugar level. And, you know, I don't need to convince you, that was a huge thing for not just the kids in the camp, but also for the staff in the camp. And, you know, I was not there when we did the initial training, but I remember my student came to me and she told me, well, we actually, when you presented that to the nurses, some of them were, I think a couple were crying because, you know, they were so emotional that this will be a big change for them. So we never published this, but sometimes they tell people, you know, sometimes they joke, but I think it's true. That's probably the most important thing I did in all my diabetes research. You know, you publish papers, but if I didn't publish the papers, you know, someone else would have done the work. You know, companies are spending millions of dollars developing these systems. But that work at the camp, which again, we never published, I feel quite like rewarding more than maybe anything else we actually did in the field. But I think now you can use commercial system. You know, you could use the share of Dexcom. You can, you know, follow 10 kids at the same time. So I'm not sure you need that anymore. Uh, so they used it for three years and we were very happy with that. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons I talk about that story a lot, because it is in the book, is because I think it really highlights the fact that science and research 
is so, so important and publishing is important, but sometimes it's really nice to just be able to do something to give back to your community and to the people who are helping you with your research and just reminding all of the trainees and all of the young scientists that I'm lucky enough to speak to that it's not always the publication that's the end game. Sometimes you can do something else for your community. So that is such a wonderful story. And I'm so glad that we had the chance to share it. And I'm so glad that we were able to finally have you on the show. It has been so wonderful to talk to you today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks for the show and, and all your work here. Wonderful. Thank you so much. A huge thank you to Dr. Hadar for joining us today. If you liked today's show, please be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast provider of your choice. And don't forget to rate and review us. It really does help others find the show. If you'd like more information on this topic or others related to diabetes, visit diabetes.ca or contact Diabetes Canada at info at diabetes.ca. Thanks for listening.